morning, faith family at the landing. I love to worship the Lord with you. I don't mean in any way to stop worshiping, but worship now with you over the word. I need his help. Father, I pray that these people hear a better sermon than I preach. And that you awaken deep, core-trembling, eye-opening, spine-tingling, soul-saving, world-redeeming, heaven-hearing worship from our hearts. The angels say it, nature says it, the Bible says it, the Spirit says it, believers at all times say it, you are worthy. The devil hates it, unbelievers choke on it, false teaching vomits it, and yet it's the sweetest phrase we can think of. Your word gives to us this cry of worship, gazing in the face of the lamb who is the lion and saying, you, my Christ, are worthy. Help me now to make plain what you have shown me out of the glories that are here in your word. In Revelation 5, in Jesus' name, for his honor and glory, for our great joy and salvation in him, I pray these things. Amen. A wise interpreter and reader of God's word a couple of days ago from our faith family said to me that she had never seen in Revelation how love was the driving force behind the way John has written it and the way the vision has been revealed to him. Love is what drives the vision of Revelation. This vision of heavenly worship in chapters 4 and 5 combined together is really a gift of love given by John to the seven churches that he just wrote to in chapters 2 and 3. But those seven churches represent all the churches in history, time, past, present, and future, including us. And this vision of worship is to say, everything is going wrong in your church. You're small and you're beat up and you're weak and you're opposed by the devil and, and you find your biggest problems aren't from outside of you, it's from inside of you. You feel shame and guilt and fear. You're dealing with all kinds of battles within and without. And I, the Lord Jesus Christ, come with a vision given to your servant John. And I'm going to lavish it upon you because I love you. I walk among you with stars to relight your joy in me. And I love you so much that I'm not walking away from you, churches. I'm not walking away from you, faith family at the landing or any church. I'm walking among you and within you with stars of grace in order that you might know that I love you and I'm committed to your success, even if you're not sure you are. Love is what drives Revelation 4 and 5. Love is what drives the interpretation and reading of this passage so that when we watch all the rest of chapter 6 through 19 unfold and see all the severe judgments that are to come and we see all the protection and graces of the church throughout the whole process, we say, this is how our God's loving us. This is how our God is loving us. This is how he's proclaiming, 
I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I hope you feel and experience the love of God in this passage. And specifically, I hope you feel and experience the love of God by seeing in this passage tremendous hope. Tremendous hope for churches that are obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ are going to have all earthly hopes removed from us. There are people removing earthly hopes from us right now. You know that. You know there are people plotting legal and political and spiritual moves against Christians in this country today and in the world. There are retaliations being plotted against the beautiful teaching of God's word and all the values that are commended and obeyed and called for in obedience there. There are spiritual forces in the heavenly places opposing us. We're not ignorant to Satan's designs. We know he hates us. We know he hates Christ. We know he's trying to constantly divide Christ from his people, his church, his bride. And yet these passages are meant to give the seven churches in Revelation and us tremendous hope. We're supposed to say, bring it on. Whatever you got, he's going to flip it around into your face for your destruction, devil. And our joy and success and victory. Bring it on. Why are you so cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God, says David three times in Psalm 42 and 43. A thousand years later, the apostle Paul links hope and, and heaven's praise together when he says, Famously in Ephesians 1, 11, and 12, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You see the link in Paul's thought? Absolute security in God. Devil, bring whatever you got. It's going to be turned around for your destruction in Christ's glory. And therefore I have hope, so my hope erupts in praise. That's the pattern, biblically. John means for all seven churches in Revelation, including all the churches remaining after, and this one within that number, that we have such indomitable hope in God. We have such absolute certainty that we are secure in Him, that our praise erupts when the bombs are falling on our buildings if we're the church in Ukraine. That our praise erupts when we're the church in Russia who pleads like crazy that our leader would stop his maniacal war. That we're the church in Cuba or Venezuela or North Korea or anywhere else where it's difficult to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And we would worship with indomitable hope in God, and that would lead to genuine, sweet, white-hot, authentic, get-your-heart-ready-for-heaven kind of praise. The question as to whether this hope is at work in your life, this security and this hope and this praise, the question as to whether you're going to engage at the level that the Bible calls us to in singing our praise to the Lord, the question you have to answer first in your heart is, is 
he worthy. If he's not worthy of praise, then praise and hope and security seems like the silliest religious gobbledygook quickly to be removed from your thinking. If, if he's not worthy, then you have one option, self-destruction, either the slow kind or the fast kind. That's all you have. If he's not worthy, spend your time and interest elsewhere. It's all self-destruction, either slow or fast. If he's worthy, what are you holding back for? <laughs> if he's worthy, what could possibly be extravagant in your worship and praise and the devotion of your life? If he's worthy, is there anything that could possibly be given to Christ in the service of his name, which is a waste? Your reputation. You're being called a fool. Your life, the life of your family, your money, your wealth, your inheritance. What's worth hanging on to if he's worthy? Judas was so angry with Mary when she took her entire life savings, possibly from having committed grave sin by earning that life savings in the form of beautiful perfume in an alabaster jar. And he corrected her by saying, you silly woman, we could have used that money in that jar to feed the poor. And John says, don't be duped by Judas. He was carrying the money bag. He wanted it for himself. Because she had poured out with holding nothing back in extravagant praise her entire life and reputation on King Jesus along with her tears and wiped it up with her hair. What are you holding back if he is in fact worthy? That's the question that John wants the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 to answer. Is Christ worthy of all that we're battling? Is Christ worthy of all that we're enduring? Is Christ worthy of all the persecution we're experiencing? Is Christ worthy of my engaging in a battle with my own flesh so that I rise and engage, so that I'm here and involved and that I'm vulnerable and open and risk-taking because there's no way our God ever takes a risk. It's against his nature. He's God. He sovereignly rules the outcome of every risk. There's no such thing as a risk with God. Therefore, I can take risk with everything. Hardly could call it a risk. There's nothing, no pain, no worship, no sacrifice, no praise, no expenditure of your life, reputation, well-being, and time and resources that he does not return back on you a hundredfold. The answer to the question, is he worthy, is given in three songs. You're going to look at three different groups of people singing three slightly different things, all proclaiming the reasons why he is worthy. You see what happens in the first half of chapter 5. Christ, as the Lamb of God, who is also the Lion, steps forward to the throne and takes from his Father's hand the scroll 
the scroll containing all the decrees of God and all the unfolding of God's plan. If no one opens the scroll, the plan is not enacted. If someone comes forward and is holy enough, both as God and as man, without any sin, and has absolute power to stand and rule over the world with all the seven seals opened and the scroll being enacted and everything written on it being brought into reality, then that person alone is worthy to stand forward and come to the throne, take from God's right hand, the Father's right hand, the scroll, open the seals, and enact everything written in there. No one doubts what's written in there. Surely everyone would have known the prophets and the apostles and all the scriptures have foretold what was in there. It's just who's got the power to make it happen. Christ alone steps forward as the Lion of Judah, And when John looks, he sees a lamb. Christ is fully lion and fully lamb. Not a mixture of the two, compromising neither. He is fully lion and fully lamb. The root of David, he's the one who has conquered. That's what makes him worthy. Now they're going to sing. They're going to sing songs of the worthiness of Christ. And as they sing the worthiness of Christ, the living and fixed word is going to create in you a desire to say, yes, I agree. He is worthy. Not just because you think it's true. The devil thinks it's true. But he can't say amen. Because amen doesn't just mean it is true. It means it's true and I love it. Don't be constipated in your worship. It's not a big, hairy deal to say amen. It's what everybody says when they hear something that they love and it's true. You'll say it constantly in heaven. Look at the last verse. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And they're whispering as they fall down on the sea of glass before the throne. Amen and amen and amen. It's true and I love it. The question that lingers in your heart and mind is, is he worthy? My whole life is different if he's worthy. Every parenting decision, every dollar, every sex decision, every entertainment decision, every work decision, every philosophy that I consider, every theology decision, every food decision, my whole life is defined differently if in fact I believe he is worthy I'm going to hold nothing back song number one verses nine and ten and they sang a new song the 24 elders the four living creatures are the first choir singing song number one and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth why is it called a new song look at verse 11 of chapter 4 worthy are you chapter 4 our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things And by your will, they existed and were created. That's the old song. God gets all the praise and honor and glory, God the Father, because he created the world. The four living creatures and and all the elders 
and the angels and all that exists in all realms and in all the universe, all existed and created reality was created by God. Therefore, he is worthy. That's the old song. Now, the, what's new about the new song is what makes the new covenant new after the old covenant. Fulfilling, climaxing, bringing to completion everything promised in the old covenant. The new is a new song saying now that God has sent his son, we exalt him, the lion and the lamb, as God has exalted him, and we worship him as the final and complete expression of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness for sinners. Now this mercy expressed in the new covenant of which Christ is the captain, champion, and chief is the new song. And every time anybody thinks about Jesus Christ, they're singing, therefore, a new song. What do the 24 elders and four living creatures sing? Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. Why? Ground, because the next word is for. For you were slain. You used to be dead and you've got scars because evil men under God's design killed you. They hung you on a cross. They falsely accused you and brutalized you and they killed you and laid you in the ground. You were slain, but the were is all important. You're not slain anymore. You're not in the ground anymore. You're not dead any longer. You've risen from the dead, but in your death, you achieved the ransom, the purchase of a people for God. Your blood was precious and powerful and effective. You didn't just make ransom a possibility. You actually ransomed a people. You actually bought a people for God. Not just Jewish people, but people from every tribe and language and people and nation. The first reason that Christ is worthy is that he was slain, he rose from the dead, having successfully bought for himself a people for God from every different language, tribe, people, and nation of the world. He is not a tribal or provincial savior. He's not just for the Jewish people or just for certain tribes, languages, peoples, and nations. He's for all the world. He's a global Savior, a global God. His purposes are global. Now we're seeing something of what the scroll included. The unfolding of the scroll, the enacting of the scroll, is God's plan that Christ's death would purchase people from every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation from around the world. He is worthy because he died on behalf of sinners. He propitiated or absorbed in himself the guilt of my sin and of your sin if you're trusting in Christ. And it's so powerful that now no longer does death and eternal destruction in hell await all those who've called on the name of the Lord and have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. His blood actually washes us clean from sin. It has that kind of power, power no bull or goat or dove, or lamb in the Old Testament ever had. Why is Christ worthy? Because he's our redeemer, our ransomer. He bled in our place, and he endured God's wrath for us as our substitute and atoning sacrifice. The cross, 
the grave, the empty tomb, and the plan to cover the earth with his glory, winning for himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the first reason he is worthy. The gospel, in other words, that we capture this great truth is why we claim and delight in Christ being worthy. The second reason is implied in verse 10 very plainly. Look at verse 10. And have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. He doesn't just cleanse us and say, there you are, free to go back to the life that got you dirty in the first place. No, he makes us into a kingdom. We are members of his kingdom. We are priests of God. We are to reign on the earth. He's not saying to the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, and Philadelphia, you should be running those cities. No, he's not saying that. He's saying you are a kingdom in God's kingdom. You are part of his kingdom, priests to our God. You are to come into heaven and not just be ruled over, but to rule with me. You are not the ones merely being prayed for as I, the high priest. You are the ones doing the praying. You're a kingdom of priests to our God. Do you remember in Revelation 19.16? There's a vision of Christ Way near the end of the, chap- of the book of Revelation, it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you know who the small letter kings and lords are? You and me. He's the king over us, and we're kings with him. He's the Lord over us, and we lord with him. We're the ones in view. It's exactly what Paul said in Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that what? He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Same exact idea. 1 Peter 2 says it this way. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. See the idea of kingdom of priests? We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You should have a a desire, a set of phrases Verses of the Bible that you've got memorized, stamped on your heart. You should have ideas and thoughts about your salvation that you are ready to share at a moment's notice. You should have content to your testimony that you are ready to say to anybody, I used to be in darkness, he brought me out of that darkness and he put me into light. Do you want to know why he did that? Not because I was worthy, oh no, but because he's got excellency after excellency after excellency. Can I tell you about them? Goodness sakes, if Bridgman's creates a new malt, people want to talk about it. If there's a new tall ship that comes into the harbor, people want to say, oh, that's cool. If the twins will finally win a game, they say, well, I'll check out that home run. We have excellencies of our Christ to tell people about. Eternal excellencies that if they too join us in delighting in them, they will too see that he is worthy and their life will be transformed from darkness to light as well. There's no other excellency, no other precious qualities, no other worth than the worth of Christ worth devoting your entire life for. Some of you might hear the charge, the call embedded in Revelation 5. This unfolding of the scroll, which clearly shows the worth of Christ, how how he was slain and he's risen again, yet scarred, and he conquered the grave. 
And his blood is powerful to ransom a people, and not just a Jewish people, but a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you say, my goodness, I've got, I've got siblings all over the world. What a thrill it would be to go to the places of the world and to introduce myself as their long-lost brother in Christ. And to tell them about the salvation that's theirs if they would come out of their orphan and empty and lost dark existence and be saved into the family of God as God has drawn them. Some of you might, in in fact, sense a call to the missionary enterprise. I think he's doing that at the landing. Do you want to know why? I've been a pastor for a long time, and I talked to lots of pastors, and every one of them has said to me at one time or other, in some prayer or conversation, wouldn't it be the coolest thing if you could look on the back of our worship folder and see almost all of those missionaries be in one place at one time, face to face. And everybody says, you know what they say after that? A bunch of pastors getting together and they talk about something like that and they'd say, that would never happen. That's going to happen in heaven. It's never going to happen on earth. Do you know, do you know that the vast majority, almost all of these missionaries on the back of our little worship folder are going to be here August or September 11th through the 18th at some time during that week. When myself and some of the other leaders of the church, the missions team and others realized God was just blessing this little backwoods church called The Landing with all of these missionaries. Yes, Rick and Marilyn Perhai from Ukraine, they're going to be here. Rick's going to be preaching on the 18th of September. Andrew and Lydia, Claire Penny, Tom and Nicole, Bill and Nancy. I might just call up Floris Donalds and say, you got to get over here. Brian and Cammie, you got to be here. The only reason God would bring missionaries like that together in one place at one time is because he is doing a mighty, powerful recruiting work. He's going to give us a vision of missionary glory where Christ will be heralded as worthy to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And he's going to call some of you into joining the ranks. We'll get a bigger worship folder. And we'll come and see you wherever the Lord leads you. There is massive reasons to believe that he is worthy. First, he died in ransom for sins. Second, he conquered the grave. Third, he saves people from all over the world, tribes, tongues, people, and nation. And fourth, he's made us a kingdom of priests to our God. I want you to notice the word shall. The word shall at the end of verse 10. And they shall reign on the earth. It's really clear in Greek. It's an absolute done deal. There's a sigma in there showing that it's a future perfect. It's a shall. It's a massively unstoppable dauntless promise that God is declaring they shall reign on the earth. He doesn't get cheated out of what he bought on the cross. There's no way Christ loses anyone that he holds in the palm of his hand. No one snatch is you or me out of his hand. The security that's welling up in the hearts of the people who are reading this, and now you and I by the Spirit reading this, makes us say, really? Really? Don't take a detour into how in the world does that happen. Forget that question. You'll have it answered in heaven. Just rest in the fact that he says, shall. Your Bible ought to say, shall. 
Underline the shall. It's going to happen. You're going to reign in his kingdom as a priest, having been cleansed of your sin, removed of all your guilt, and made a delightful co-monarch, co-regent with the king of kings and lord of lords. And you're real happy. He's the king and you're the of kings. He's the lord and you're the of lords. That's how the beleaguered churches in Ethiopia and Venezuela and the beleaguered churches among the Uyghurs and the Ecuadorians and the Inuit and the Indians and the Wolof peoples, the beleaguered churches in China or the beleaguered churches in Duluth, Minnesota, strengthen and steady the spine of steel in their back of faith and say, I'm going to follow Christ and hold nothing back because he is worthy and I'm secure in him. The second song. Now it's getting broader and wider and louder. The choir gets much bigger. Verse 11 and 12. Then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels. Now the angels are going to sing. They love to sing. When Jesus was born, they broke through the heavens in Bethlehem and sang. Whenever angels sing, you know that God has worked a mighty work of glory and grace. Here the angels are singing, and it's so many you can't count, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, the angels are holding nothing back. There ain't no timid angels. None of them are, none of them are holding back. None of them are letting everybody else do the work, and their lips are, are, are just still and closed. No, all the angels are bellering out big, loud songs of praise to God, saying, worthy is the Lamb. They're saying that to your soul. The Spirit is telling you that the angels, through John's vision and my lame sermon here, are telling you that the Lamb is worthy. Forget about everything else. Say to your soul right now, preach the best sermon to your soul and say, soul, you know the Lamb is worthy. That's how you talk to yourself right now. The Lamb is worthy. Who was slain. But now look what they do. They give to the Lamb what's only due to God. They give to the Lamb what's only due to God the Father. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They string together all the wonderful things that the entire Old Testament has said only belongs to God Yahweh. And they give them all to the Lamb. This is what happens when you are convinced that he is worthy. He's no longer just a sidekick to God. Jesus Christ is God. He's the one who receives your worship. He's the one who receives everything you are. If you come to God without coming through Jesus Christ, you're incinerated. There's no other religion who sets Jesus Christ aside and thinks they're worshiping the God of the Bible who's ever going to get to him. It's not like they get to him and say, when we Christians get there coming through Jesus, what took you? No, no. If they come before the living God, the God who handed over the scroll to his son here in Revelation 5, they will be incinerated if they don't come covered in the protective blood of Jesus Christ. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Everything that the churches in the first century Asia Minor didn't have materially and naturally. Everything God alone possesses and gives freely throughout the Old Testament. Now the new song says, 
all those things that came from Jesus too, the Son of God eternal, and we give all of them back to him. Just like the crowns the elders had, they got them first from God, they're going to then take them off their heads and cast them down in worship before the Lord. What do you have that you didn't have get as a gift from God? Nothing. So what do you have is all a gift from God, and therefore what do you have that's worthy of offering back to him in worship? Everything. Why are you holding back? Why are you holding back your time and your gifts and abilities? Why do, you, why do you hold your pain back? Don't you think someone else needs to hear it and learn from you and be blessed by you? Why are you holding back the wisdom? Why are you holding back all that you are and all that you have? This gospel of salvation, why are you holding it back from people who when they're in hell say, why didn't you tell me? Worthy is the lamb Solomine, who was slain to receive everything God receives, everything I have to give. The whole army of heaven's angels is the choir singing to my soul, worthy is the lamb who was slain. The imagery is drawn from Daniel 7, 9 through 10, almost a quote. Daniel said, and as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. You know why there's wheels in the Old Testament. It's all about the exile. Every time you see a wheel, think they're moving in and out of exile. That's what the wheels are there for in the Old Testament visions of God's glory. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. A court sat in judgment and the books were opened. That's the vision closed up in Daniel, now open to us in Revelation 5. It's shocking to us and it ought to shock us because it says to our Jewish friends and our Muslim friends and it says to all the other religions of the world, there is one God, one Father, one Son, and one Spirit, three persons in one God. There is one name and one name alone by which we come to this one God, the name of Jesus Christ and he alone. Song number three, verses 13 and 14. Now this is a picture of the future in heaven. The choir has gotten as large as all creation and all beings. Look at verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is everybody. Nobody's watching. Nobody sits along the side. Nobody's merely participating. Every person and being in creation sings. And in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor, glory and might forever and ever. And then it reverts back to the four living creatures nearest to the throne who bow down with the elders and say, Amen. The whole creation worships God. Every creature, every cell, every molecule, every ion, proton, neutron, and quark, every planet, every star, every solar system and galaxy, every mass in the universe, every, every being in God's creation has a vibrational frequency. And every thump of every planet that can be heard with careful listening ears and microphones says, worthy, 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 worthy. Every beat of your heart says, worthy, worthy, worthy. The entire cosmos, the heavens are telling the glory of God. What of the glory of God are they saying? The Lamb, Christ, is worthy. 
Sing to him. Join the song. You have to in the end anyway. Don't be among those who sing it as their march to hell and destruction. That will be the theme song that they will sing begrudgingly, hatefully, fearfully, and angrily. They will be marching on their way to eternal destruction. Worthy is the Lamb whom I hate and cannot say amen to. Let it be among you and all nature, redeemed by God, beloved, who, who hear the name of Jesus and say, yes, the scarred and, and blood-ransoming one, the one raised, the one seated, the one with whom I reign and with whom I am a priest over all creation. I praise and delight in him. This is Paul foretelling this exact scene in Philippians 2. And God bestowed on him, Christ, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All reality sings. Why do you think it is that when John means to love the churches and give them hope, he shows them a vision of heaven, and in heaven, it's all three choirs. It's the inner choir, worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's, it's the angelic choir, massive thousands, worthy to receive all the praise that God alone is due because Christ himself is God. And then it's all creation, the humming and the drumming and the throbbing of all creation in all places in all the universe, throbbing its praise. He is worthy. Why is it music? Why is it singing? Why don't we get an image of um, people working happily so with no sweat? Uh, why don't we get a, an, an image of people having a theological discussion and enjoying it over coffee? Why don't we get an image of uh, uh, families dwelling together and laughing, maybe, maybe playing a board game. Why don't we get an image of someone preaching? I just don't think there's going to be any preachers in heaven. We've got the Lamb. We've got the glory of God. We've got the Spirit. We'll know all things. I'm preaching myself out of a job here. Praise the Lord. Why not a picnic? Why not some heavenly sporting event if there were such a thing? Why singing? You might say singing has this unique capacity to declare truth in a passionate, committed, emotional way. Singing has a way of dividing up a church, doesn't it? You can just see, you can just hear. Who's all in this? Little kids looking up at their daddy and mommy. Are, are they, I know what they look like when they are all in on something. Are they all for this Jesus? Surest way to know that when 20-year-olds leave out and they're going to go follow Christ is if when they were little, they have a memory of mom and dad singing white-hot songs of praise to God. Why singing? Why is singing so suitable and fitted and perfect and beautiful for us to see God receiving in heaven? Why is it so capable of creating this hope and this confidence that what they sing, Christ is worthy, is true? 
Here are three reasons, and I'm done. Reason number one, God, the Father, sings to himself. After he created the world, he wrote a poem and he sang it to himself, Genesis 2-4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God, me, made the earth and heaven. And he loves to sing God the Father over his beloved bride, his children. You can just hear him right now, louder than my voice, clearer than my voice, louder and clearer than any voices in your head right now. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. He quiets you so you shut up and listen to him. So much is coming to my mind right now. Second reason. Jesus isn't the lamb and lion standing there holding a scroll and just receiving like a weird happy birthday song, you know, where the person who has the gift in their hands and, uh, or they're by the cake and it's burning with candles and everybody's singing to them and they're just going, oh, how awkward this is. Could I sing along with my own happy birthday song? And that's awkward too. So I'm not going to do that. That's not what the picture is in heaven. Don't think that. Just before he died, he led the disciples out to the Mount of Olives and he sang with them a hymn. Jesus sings. In Romans 15, 8, Paul is quoting a psalm, Psalm 18, in which Paul says to the Romans, here's how Jesus talks. Therefore, I, Jesus, will praise you, God the Father, among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Jesus sings. Hebrews chapter 2, 10 and 12, another psalm is quoted, and again, it's Jesus as the subject doing the speaking. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Christ, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all have one source, that is God. That is why he, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name, God, to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I, Christ, will sing your praise. Don't think that Jesus only listens silently and receives praise in heaven. He's got a massive voice, and he's leading heavenly worship. The question you must answer for yourself and the Spirit is leading you to ask and answer right now is this. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of my life? Is he worthy of everything that I am? Is he worthy of everything that I have and everything that I could dream? Is he worthy of taking all the difficulties and sorrows and brokenness of my life and redeeming it so that it's a praise and honor to his name? Is he worthy? Let's pray. Speak, Holy Spirit, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of God the Father to every 